Welcome back to the Cinderella Theorem. If you missed the previous chapters, you can find them on this podcast in the episode list. And now, chapter 19, The Origins of Evil Levi. Kalo. It had to be Kalo. It made mathematical sense. He had been adopted into Puss in Boots, but since his adoption occurred before the written part of the story began, it didn't matter. As far as the story was concerned, he was always the second son. The evidence of Selden's son's death was circumstantial at best, and completely illogical. The queen didn't return to the hillside for a week. The miller, or his wife, could have found Kalo and brought him home. The bloody clothes and entrails found a week later could have been from something else, or put there as a decoy. I stopped myself. That was an awful lot of work for the miller or his wife to do. Plus, didn't the miller's journal indicate they found Kalo on the doorstep? And how would they know to leave a death scene? It took sneaky spying to know what the queen intended when she dumped her grandson out there on the hill. And it required a fair amount of evilness also to let Colin and Selden think their baby was dead. The queen wasn't an option. She herself believed animals had eaten him. Only one other person satisfied that equation of spying and evilness. Levi. I bet there were grease stains on those bloody clothes. And hadn't Levi told me he was Selden's dark mesa? That he'd been working Selden's case for a very long time? Not only did he make everyone vanish, he created the depressing end to her fairy tale. I sighed. Great. Now Levi's plan was completed. Tandem Talus would be pleased to have a fully vanished story languishing in his dungeons. Of course, I was probably the only one who knew that Kayla really belonged to Selden's story. Everyone else thought the story completely vanished hundreds of years ago. I sat on my bed to think. So many equations were balancing now. Kayla was always less than happy because his levels were affected by the fact his other story had vanished. No wonder he was grumpy all the time. And he wasn't muttering, I'm a hothead that day in the office, although he really was. He was muttering, I'm adopted. But Levi's timing bugged me. He could have pushed Kayla over any time. He obviously knew who he really was. Why not get him when he vanished the rest of the story? Why now? Macon Mine was waiting when I arrived. Good morning, princess, he bowed. I have been asked to give you this. He handed me a note. I have several pressing matters to attend to, so if you have no further need of me... Macon dangled a sentence waiting for me to dismiss him. I'm good. Thanks, Macon. Macon bowed again and started to walk away. Wait a minute, Macon. I called, hurrying after him. I thought of something. Of course, princess. How may I serve you? Could you keep my being here a secret? I don't want my parents to know. An odd expression crossed Macon's face. Are you in danger, princess? Is there not some other way I could assist you? I considered telling him. I considered saying, yeah, Macon, I'm on a mission to save the people I vanished. But instead, I said, I just don't want them to know I'm here. I have to take care of something. And they want you to stay in the other world. Macon's tone was even kinder than before. I nodded. I will not openly lie to my king and queen princess, but, he paused, I will not volunteer the information either. Thank you, Macon. He bowed and left. I opened the note, which turned out to be another short and cryptic message from Doug. Don't come to the observatory. I'll meet you in your cubicle. I ran upstairs with my bag down, then I ran back downstairs, hopped on my bike, and headed for Hia. I didn't leave my marble in the bowl for a very good reason. I didn't want my parents to figure out I was here. I would just have to be extra careful not to lose it. I certainly didn't want to spend the rest of my life in Smith's SFL. I had brought Ella's file with me just in case I needed it. I planned to tell Doug everything, right down to my need to make Ella normal, but my plan failed from the beginning. As I pedaled toward Hia, I saw my parents get off their own bikes and enter the building. Not only that, but two guards were now guarding the entrance. Security must be heightened due to the vanishings. I needed to recalculate my equation. 
I was technically skipping school, and while I could probably legitimately argue why I needed to be there, I didn't want to. When parents were already under stress from an illness, a problem at work, or a vanishing rampage in their kingdom, being disobedient by missing curfew, failing to complete chores, or skipping school to save vanished friends only increased their stress, which increases the potential punishment. Since my ability to help Doug all depended on my ability to A, get to him, and B, not to be sent to my room or home by my parents, I was stuck. I hopped off my bike and headed into the woods, far enough off the path that I wouldn't be seen. I sat on a large rock and thought, there had to be a mathematical solution, some way I could get into heat without being seen. I exhausted the mathematical solutions first. No back or side doors, only the main door, and while some of the offices had windows, our cubicle didn't. I sighed and said mathematically, I wish I was invisible. Now you're talking. Glenny hovered above me, plaid sparks dripping from her wand. I do wish you'd wish more, she said, floating down to my level, but fairy godmothers don't get to have wishes. We only get to give them. Why? Well, it would be silly for a fairy godmother to have a fairy godmother. It doesn't make sense. I nodded, careful to avoid pointing out a fairy godmother didn't make much sense in the first place. How are you supposed to learn to solve problems for yourself if you had someone popping out of thin air every time you made a wish? How did you keep yourself from being spoiled? So, you want to be invisible? Glennie was bobbing up and down slightly. Yes, I need to get into here without being seen. As long as I had wished her here, I might as well use her. Spoiling or not, there was no other way into here. It would have to be magic. Well, invisibility has its uses, but you want to be careful with it. It can end badly if you do it wrong. She floated slowly in a circle, thinking, Hmm, yes, that would be best. She stopped her circular motion in front of me. Do you happen to have your key? Which key? I asked. I left my house keys at home. Not those keys. She shook her head slightly. Your key, your key to the kingdom. Oh, I said, understanding. You mean my marble? Yes, yes, your marble. I pulled it out of my pocket and held it in my palm, offering it to Glenny. She pointed her magic wand at it and said, Float. The marble rose into the air. I stared at Glenny. I wasn't shocked by the magic so much. I'd gotten somewhat used to that, but I couldn't believe there were no magic words. Float described what was happening, sure, but wasn't magic supposed to be something else? Shouldn't Glenny have said, Floatius or Floatia or Float Abracadabra? Why in the name of salt are you staring at me like that? Glenny didn't look at me when she spoke. She was concentrating on the marble hovering slightly above her head. It's quite difficult to perform any sort of magic while being ogled. I shook my head slightly to break the stare. I'm sorry, Glenny. I apologize, but I thought you used magic words. Glenny swiveled around to talk to me. She kept her wand pointed over her shoulder. The marble still floated. What are you talking about? What magic words? You said float. I just thought you'd say something else, like abracadabra open sesame float. That's ridiculous. Glenny turned back around. Why would I say all that nonsense? She moved the wand up and down slightly. The marble followed, in direct proportion to her wand movements. I wanted the marble to float, so I said float. Okay, I get it. I got up and walked around Glenny so I could see her face. I just thought the magic words had to sound magical. Good grief. Glenny rolled her eyes. That's more of that animated propaganda you get in your world. Next, she'll be thinking we all break into song, too. Glenny moved her wand from side to side, making the marble move horizontally also. Words magical or otherwise, only have the power you put behind them. What? I mean, people give words their power. A taboo word is only taboo because someone decided it was that. A magic word is only magical because I put magical power behind it. If you don't give words their power, they don't mean anything. So if I insult you and you don't give the words any power, you aren't offended? 
That's the theory, anyway. Glennie had the marble spiraling up and down and all around. However, you very rarely meet with anyone who so completely retains their power. Most of us are all too willing to let the words have all the power. I wasn't willing to continue this discussion. I didn't have time to mathematically determine how much of my own power was tied up in words, and I was uncomfortably sure Glennie was one of those you rarely meet with who absolutely had all her own power. What are you doing? I asked to change the subject. Floating marble acrobatics didn't seem to equal becoming invisible. I'm testing your marble's obedience. It's a marble. You can get them at any store. Not these you can't. Glennie made the marble do increasingly faster figure eights. These were given to your father as a boy by Giacomo. So? I asked a little tentatively. So? Giacomo only makes magical toys. For instance, he created Robert, the steadfast tin soldier. So the marble is magic? Magic how? Like, am I only a good marble player because I play with magic marbles? Something else struck me. Have I been cheating? Cheating was very unmathematical. Glennie looked directly at me. The marble looked like a hula hoop spinning around her. You are not a cheater. Only someone who knows the proper spells can use the magical properties of the marbles. The marbles were only ever regular marbles for you. Well, what can they do? I pointed to the blue whirl. Can that one turn me invisible? I asked, calculating the odds the marble I had chosen as my key to the kingdom was also the marble that could turn me invisible. Assuming, of course, only one of the marbles could make me invisible. If all of my father's marbles had the capability to render me invisible, then it wouldn't have been difficult to choose the right one. That probability was 100%. Glennie interrupted my math. Yes and no. This marble will be able to turn you invisible, but only because it's a magical marble, not because it's a marble that turns you invisible. I blinked twice. What does that mean? Giacomo's marbles come with the potential to perform whatever task is magically assigned to them. If you had them adjusted to act as a flying aid, you would fly like a bird. Or you could place one in your flower bin and be assured you would never run out of flower. She had my marble slow down. Before your father left them for you, he instructed them to appear to be normal, everyday marbles. The marble floated down into her hand. But the effect isn't irreversible. She smiled and smoked the marble. When rubbed three times to the left, make the holder invisible. That should do the trick. She tossed the marble to me. Give it a try. I eyed the marble suspiciously. So you were making sure it was obedient because as a magical entity, it might not be obedient? Glennie nodded. Exactly. It's been 15 years since any spell's been cast on them. They were bound to get a little rebellious in that time. Right. I nodded slowly. I took a deep breath and rubbed my rebellious marble three times to the left. I can still see me, I said at the same time that Glennie was saying, ah, oh, perfect, it worked. I stood staring at her incredulously for four seconds before I realized that if it had worked, like she said, she couldn't see my look of disbelief. What do you mean it worked? I can still see myself. Of course you can. You're invisible, not non-existent. <sighs> she made an exasperating noise here. With a flick of her wand, a full-length mirror appeared. I looked at myself in the mirror, but it'd be more accurate to say I looked at nothing. I had no reflection. Weird. This was very unmathematical. Glennie smiled. To become visible again, rub the marble three times to the right. Standard counterspell. I rubbed. Ah, yes. Glennie rose a little higher in the sky. Very lucky you had the marble, dear. Becoming invisible by potion is just too time-consuming to be managed. Say hi to Cinderella for me. I'm glad you took my hint and became friends with her. Wait, what hint? That day at the fork in the road. I just knew you two girls would hit it off. Good luck with the rescue. With another flick of her wand, she and the mirror disappeared. What? How did Glennie know I was on my way to save Cinderella? I sighed. Nothing ever made sense here. 
I shoved aside the temptation to apply math to the situation and pushed the marble back into the safety of my pocket. Math would not always help me in this world. I hesitated before I spoke to my bike. Go back to the castle, please. You need to be there so mom and dad won't know I'm here. I thought the bike actually nodded with its handlebars and then rolled slowly away. I rubbed myself invisible and headed for the main entrance to Hia. Being invisible didn't prove to be an entirely perfect solution. For one thing, invisibility did not equal silence. A terrified and probably talking squirrel ran off at the sound of my footsteps. Also, being invisible seemed to equal being hot. If I had a decent Fahrenheit thermometer with me, I could prove my body temperature had risen as a result of being invisible. It was as if something was literally covering me, hiding me, warming me. Sweating, I arrived at the doors of Hia and was stumped by my first real challenge as an invisible person. I couldn't just sneak up and open the door because there were people milling around inside the building just open by themselves. I sighed, making one of the guards jump, which made me jump when I realized how loud I was. I should have wished for Glenny to just transport me directly to my cubicle. I stood impatiently near the door, stupidly invisible, trying to think of a way into the building. Suddenly, the door flew open with such force that it hit the 180-degree mark and stayed there. Make way! A messenger shouted. Make way! Urgent message coming through! I took advantage of the open door, slipping inside before the guards could recover. I headed straight for my cubicle to avoid people rushing by. Doug sat at Kayla's desk, tapping his thumb impatiently. When I entered, his eyes went straight to me. He looked me over suspiciously, then smiled. Clever, he muttered. Glenny's doing, I suppose? My jaw dropped. I'm supposed to be invisible, I grouched, moving to my desk. You are, Doug turned to look at me. I wouldn't be a very good head observer if I couldn't see through invisibility. Can't believe you can see me. Well, I can't see you in the strictest definition of seeing. It's more like I can sense you. Bizarre, I mumbled. It was your father's suggestion. He had all the observers extra visibly endowed a few years ago, part of heightened security measures. Speaking of the observatory, why aren't we meeting there? The observatory was a few floors above us. The odds of running into my parents there were significantly slimmer than here on the main floor, right down the hall from Grimm's office. I glanced nervously toward the entrance of the cubicle. We don't want to be overheard by any dark mesas. What? I hadn't been aware evil dark mesas hung out in the observatory. The receptors of the observatory are set very high in order to hear or receive the happiness level information. Because of that, it's easy for spoken conversation in the observatory to be overheard or intercepted by dark mesas. They know we're using a high frequency. We're currently working on a more secure solution. I understood Doug was saying very mathematical sounding words like receptors, level, and frequency. But just because a sentence had mathematical words in it didn't mean it made sense. Doug seemed to realize I hadn't quite grasped what he was saying because he kept explaining it in different ways. I nodded occasionally, but I wasn't listening. I still had trouble understanding how happiness could be measured. I wasn't ready to understand why I needed a high frequency. I looked down at my desk, so Doug wouldn't see my eyes glazing over, and saw a note for me, placed prominently in the center. I quickly read it. Lily, listen, I'm pretty close to vanishing, so stop making equations. Stop trying to make a chart. I found out last week I was adopted, my brother told me. I don't want to get into a lot of personal details, but I haven't had much luck handling the news on my own. I'm not sure what other story will be impacted by my vanishment. Give this journal to Miranda. The page marked is where my father wrote about finding me. Maybe she can use the information to save the others. Okay, well, if I don't make it back, I wanted to tell you I think you'll be a good happyologist someday. Your ideas are good, they just aren't... Aren't what? I asked aloud. What? Doug looked at me. I ignored him and flipped the sheet over. It's just like Kayla to leave half a note for me. Half a note did not equal an entire note. No wonder he vanished, I mumbled. He was paying me a compliment. That must have made him really unhappy. What are you talking about? This! I shoved the note and journal to him. Doug quickly scanned the note. Hmm. 
He's right about not knowing which story he came from. We'll have to alert the observers. They can look for patterns, see if any story seems to have a downward trend. We already know the citizens from Puss in Boots will be affected. We sent out their happyologists immediately. No one wants a repeat of the Avon Cinderella double vanishing, but it's odd both Miranda and Grimm are unavailable, though. Miranda? I knew Grimm was a statue, but what happened to Miranda? She was in the office with Kara. So they're both trapped? Why won't the door open? And how'd the Trenchies let that happen? I thought they were all about security and bodyguarding. Doug smiled. Trenchies? I guess you mean the agents. I nodded. Trenchies is a better name. I'll suggest that to Kara when we're finished. But to answer your questions, yes, they are both trapped. No, the door won't open. And all the, uh, Trenchies were trapped in the office as well. I opened my mouth to ask another question, but Doug held up his hand and continued. All their super secret beefers went off at the same time. They thought Kara was in trouble, so they rushed in to save her. He paused. None of them can get out, and none of us can get in. Can you talk to them through the door? And why won't it open? There was no mathematical reason for the door not opening, unless the density of persons in the office was so great the door could not swing inward. No, we tried shouting through the door and slipping notes under it. Nothing's worked, probably for the same reason the door won't open. He shuddered as if he had touched something disgusting. Grease. There's a thick layer of grease all over the door, dripping down to the carpet. It's going to be a nightmare to clean when this is over. That evil little sycophant. Why is Levi harassing everyone? Doug looked surprised. I've been wondering that myself, princess. Oh, yeah? I managed to say. I hadn't meant to ask the question out loud. Yes. Doug moved his chair up to Kayla's desk. Levi doesn't usually... That is, he isn't usually so deeply involved in a case. What do you mean? Everything I'd seen of Levi so far was completely in character for a man who stole a baby off a hillside just so he could make Selden depressed enough to vanish. He's evil. Well, sure, this does seem that way, but usually Levi just does prank stuff, like turning off the alarms at Marshall Road. I've never seen him mess with the agency, not to mention Miranda and Grimm. Dark Maces have rules too, you know. They can't just be indiscriminately evil. They have cases assigned to them like we do. Are you defending Levi? Of course not. Doug quickly shook his head. I'm merely exposing the inconsistencies in his behavior. Look, I interrupted. I know for a solid mathematical fact that Levi's behavior is always this evil. And for the next 15 minutes, I explained to Doug everything I knew about Levi. The tango, the visit in the bathroom, the letters, the grease stains on the file folder, and the final proof, Kalo's vanishing coinciding with the vanishing of the Candlemaker's daughter file. Doug raised his eyebrows considerably when I explained my theory about Levi taking the infant Kalo off the hillside and leaving him on the miller's doorstep. Did Kalo know about any of this? Doug asked when I finally stopped. Any of what? I asked cautiously. I hadn't gotten around to my part in the whole Cinderella slash Avon mess. Secretly holding on to a supposedly vanished file, being continually harassed by Levi? Uh, no. Then I rushed on before Doug could say anything. But there's some more stuff you should know. And before I could mathematically stop myself, I hurtled along and confessed to everything. I admitted to being the rather unfortunate variable in the lives of Ella and Avon. Doug's mouth hung open for several seconds after I'd finished. Two things. One, I'm glad I don't have to explain all this to Kalo, because he's going to be very angry. And two, this doesn't affect my strategy at all. I think. He paused. It just doesn't make sense for Levi to want Kalo to vanish, to be actively involved in vanishing him. Why not? Don't Dark Mesas want all of us to vanish anyway? In theory, Doug answered. They're supposed to, but I don't suppose you have any idea what the Sinus dungeons are like, do you? No. Ella and Avon and the rest of the regular citizens, Selden, Colin, etc., will just be tortured by things that make them unhappy forever. Avon might be lost without a map, and Ella will probably be watching him from her cell, knowing that she caused him to vanish. I sighed. I was one lousy happyologist. Why did I have to try to make everyone normal? 
I turned my attention back to Doug, who was hypothesizing in detail about the now miserable lives of my friends. But with the banished happyologist, it's different. Tandem Talus gives them a choice, stay in the dungeon being tortured forever or become a Dark Mesa. None of us would do that, I said incredulously. None of us would ever become a Dark Mesa. It's happened before. Many times, in fact, every Dark Mesa, except Tandem Talus, was once a happyologist. It is supposed that even your father's brother defected when he vanished. My father has a brother? I paused to let that sink in. I can't believe a happyologist would switch sides. It's not mathematical. Why would they defect like that? Think about it, princess. Would you stay in a miserable dungeon working unsolvable math problems, knowing that if you chose, you could be free? Yeah, but dungeons are dungeons. At some point, everyone wants out badly enough. He shook his head. I don't like the choices some happyologists have made, but I understand them. I hope you never have to make that choice, princess. I didn't say anything, but mentally I agreed with Doug. How could I make that choice? It was all well and good and mathematical to say I'd stay constant while I only hypothesized about it, but if I was really faced with torturous geometry proofs that could not be solved, could I stay constant? I didn't want to answer that question, so with mathematical effort, I turned my mind to another matter. Levi. So Levi was once a happyologist? Doug nodded. An extremely good one, too. He leaned into whisper. Some say he was even better than Kalo or Grimm. Not that they ever worked together. Levi was way before their time. And he was being groomed to take charge of Hia after the head hopiologist retired. So what happened, I asked. How did he go from golden boy to grease bomb? He got careless, I guess. Didn't keep up with his own happiness. And one day he vanished. Tandem Talus was delighted with his luck. He had one of the best happiologists in all Smith's SFL locked in his dungeon. In those days, Tandem Talus was the only Dark Mesa around. His strategy was simply to get the happyologist to vanish. Having no happyologist in the kingdom would make the citizens easy to pick off, but the vanishing of Levi changed everything. Levi didn't like being in the dungeon and was determined to find a way out. He waited patiently, planning his strategy. In the end, he managed to get Talus to agree to his release. How? Levi agreed to become Talus's lieutenant. In exchange for his release from the dungeon, Levi became the Dark Mesa that he is today. I didn't say anything for a moment. I was wondering how anyone could agree to betray their own country. But I was also wondering how anyone could willingly endure torture, knowing they had a way out. He's a traitor. Doug nodded. That's why he's so greasy. It's punishment for his treachery. What? Punishment from whom? Doug looked confused. From the forces of magic? You know, in all the stories, good behavior is rewarded and bad behavior is punished, like Fanchon. Who? Fanchon, the older sister who was rude to the fairy and was punished by having snakes and frogs come out of her mouth every time she talked? I just looked at Doug. He went on, and the good sister had gems and jewels strip out of her mouth because she was nice to the fairy. Good is rewarded, evil is punished. It's standard fairy tale philosophy. Didn't Kayla go over this with you? I blinked at Doug. I have no idea, I answered honestly. Kayla has mentioned numerous things that I can't remember. I looked down. If you haven't noticed, I'm not very good at this whole happyologist thing. Nonsense. You calculated why Kalo vanished with astonishing accuracy, and you're here helping to save the kingdom. He paused. I just wish I knew why Levi bothered Kalo in the first place. Other than the fact that he's evil, right? Right. Kalo's not even one of his cases. Besides, Levi is competitive. He's been Talus's number one for hundreds of years. He wouldn't want to give Kalo the chance to become a better Dark Mesa than him. Assuming Kalo would change sides, of course. I could not believe Kalo would be so treacherous. He was an annoying, stuck-up jerk, but he wasn't a traitor. He was the one who stayed at work during my presentation ball to watch the monitors. He was the one who took offense when I didn't know anything about fairy tales. Kalo loved D.G. Smith's Salty Fireland. He would never betray it. Of course. 
Doug didn't look like he held a lot of faith in Kayla's constancy, but just in case, though, we should get him out of there as soon as we can. I thought about Levi's supposedly strange behavior. If he was really acting outside of his limits, he was taking an incredible risk. Was his desire to vanish Kalo greater than his need to be the best? It didn't seem to equal the image I'd formed of him. Levi was ultimately selfish. He had selfishly chosen his own comforts over the greater good of the kingdom. Why would he go out of his way to vanish someone who could ruin his career? Why would he take the trouble of making sure Kara, Grimm, and Miranda couldn't intervene in his vanishing of Kalo? If Kalo wasn't his true target, who was? It's me, I whispered. Doug looked up from his notes. What? Levi's after me. It's basic mathematics. Why would Levi take such risks for just Kalo? He's after a much bigger target. He wants the heir to the throne. I don't think that's true. Doug fumbled with his notes, making new stacks. We can't assume. There's no other reason. Why would Levi wait until now to vanish Kalo? He thinks I'll be so saddened by Kalo's vanishment that I'll vanish too. But you aren't living happily ever after, princess. Levi knows that. You can't vanish. <clears throat> he cleared his throat. I don't think you're the reason Kalo vanished, but I do think you're the only one who can save him. Why am I the only one? Being the only one greatly reduced the mathematical odds. The only one out of a hundred had a 1% chance of success. Because your happiness levels can't be affected by Levi and Apishsena, you're not vanishable. Okay, I said slowly. Doug rolled his chair over to me. Look, we need someone in the dungeon to talk to Kalo and Ella to get them back to happy so they will vanish out of the dungeon. Since Cinderella's story is such a high profile one, we have to do this as soon as possible before the whole thing vanishes. I don't... Doug held up his hand to stop me. Let me finish. Any of us could go, sure. But our odds of success are only 10 to 12%. Your odds are closer to 57%. That's very specific. I was an accountant. But they aren't very good odds. Doug shrugged. If it were easy to get in and out of the dungeons, it wouldn't be so devastating when people vanish. You may not be a certified happyologist yet, but you have one major advantage. That I'm not vanishable? Exactly. Any of the rest of us will begin to be affected by the sadness of the dungeon as soon as we get there. That will slow us down, impact our work, and if we're not careful, could leave us trapped there. He paused. You, on the other hand, can't be bothered by the sadness, so you will be able to work at full strength for a long time, indefinitely even. Plus, you won't be confined to your cell, so you'll be able to talk to all the others. Why won't I be confined to my cell? I interrupted, ignoring the question of how I got into the cell in the first place. Doug smiled. Didn't you know? The Sinish dungeons don't have bars or locks. The prisoners are locked in by the force of their own unhappiness. Happiness is the only thing that gets them out. You will be able to move freely around the prison. Okay, but surely Talos knows about that. It is his prison, after all. He's not going to just let me wander around. No, there are guards everywhere. He ran a hand over his bald head. We really need a map table, but it will be tricky getting to the map room. He looked cautiously out the cubicle opening. Why do we need a map table? Even though I was mentally reeling from the implications of his plan, I remained calm and asked rational questions. It sounded like this rescue equation was shaping up with me in prison. Prison was very unmathematical, especially if there were no bars and locks. There are no paper copies of the Uppish Senna maps. The grease they emitted eventually ruined them. We had Avon commit them all to MTM a while back. MTM? Map table memory. Oh, I nodded. I have a map table. I opened my desk drawer and pulled out the one from Avon. Doug grabbed it. Excellent. He flipped the on switch. The table began its rhyming speech. Need a map? Need a guide? Lost? No matter how you've tried? Here, let me show you. Here, let me tell you. I'll guide you through the land of the Zulu. Hello, map table, Doug said politely. Hello, Douglas. Hello, princess. Hello, I answered. 
Doug cleared his throat. <clears throat> map table. We need to bring the Sinish dungeon maps online, and we'll need tracking capabilities activated for the princess. Hmm. The table paused, thinking, clearly unaware that tables do not, in fact, think. Here are the dungeon maps. Four total. One basic, one showing heat, one indicating levels of happiness inside each cell, and one three-dimensional one. You can move between them using my toggle keys. Thank you. Doug started looking at the different maps. Does the princess have any sort of enchanted device on her person? The table asked. That would be the easiest way to track her. We could follow her with the EOL map. EOL? I whispered to Doug. Enchanted object locators. It finds things that have magical properties. Oh. I was grateful Kayla was gone. He had a very low tolerance for answering questions I should have already known the answer to. And sadly, I actually knew about the EOL from when we used it to find my bike. Hey, Doug turned to me. You're wearing your magic shoes, aren't you? My dancing shoes? No, the shoes I enchanted to receive updates from me. Oh, those, I blushed. Yes, I'm wearing them. Great, we can use them to locate you. Wonderful, the map table joined in. Please place the shoe on my screen so I can get a reading of its magic. That's odd, I muttered. When we used the HIA table to find my bike, it didn't have to have a reading. I started taking my shoe off. I continued wondering aloud. Can a clearer picture be obtained by taking a reading of the magical object? Yes. Doug took my shoe and placed it on the map table. If there's not a specific reading or request, the EOL map picks up anything that's magic. With specific requests, the EOL will only locate that object. When they looked for your bike, they likely looked for objects in the area and then for ones that were out of place. Oh, I nodded, my understanding multiplying. My bike was in the river, so of course there aren't any magic objects in the water. That would have been a big clue. Well, except for the wish-giving fish, but they generally prefer salt water. I am finished with the shoe table announced. Thank you. Doug handed my shoe back to me. Ready to go? Ready to go where? I asked, putting my shoe back on. Doug looked confused. To save Kalo and Ella. What? Wait a minute. There are some holes in your equation, Doug. You want me to save Kalo and Ella, but you haven't told me what equals what. I can solve for one variable, but not two. Let me do the math for you. He grabbed a pencil. In all the excitement, I forgot to tell you my plan. He spent the next ten minutes going over the plan with me. It was dangerous, greasy, and involved a lot of work on my part. It was also the only thing that would succeed. Most of it was fairly straightforward. Find Levi, get him to take me to the dungeon, get locked up, wander around talking to the other prisoners, making them happy enough to vanish. Okay, after everyone else vanished back, how do I get out? Doug hesitated. Well, the thing is, even though you can get out of your cell because you're not unhappy, and you can move around because of your invisibility marble, you're still in a fortress full of Talus' guards in the middle of the wilderness. Right, so how do I get out? <clears throat> Doug coughed. The, uh, the best thing would be if you were to just become happily ever after and then you just vanish back. I made a sort of half laughing noise. <laughs> Is there a second best thing? Doug hesitated again. Let's say that if your odds of getting out by the first best thing are 50%, then the odds of you getting out by the second best thing are considerably lower. 30%? Lower, Doug whispered. 15%? Doug shook his head. You'd have to fight off the actual dungeon guards, get out of the fortress, and then make your way through 34 miles of dense forest before reaching Smithy and safety. So more like 2%? I calculated at 0.4%. He forced a smile. 0.4%? I sighed and shoved my hand in my pocket. My fingers felt my marble. I wondered vaguely if Glennie could improve 0.4% odds. Maybe I should just wish everyone out. Hey, that could work. Doug, I've got an idea. Glennie's my fairy godmother. Why don't I just wish for everyone to be free? Doug half smiled. 
that won't work. By law, all vanished people belong to Talos unless their happiness level changes. Which won't, since they are in a dungeon surrounded by things that make them unhappy. Exactly. Besides, fairy godmothers have three prohibitions about wishes. No wishing for extra wishes, no wishing for vanished people to return, and no wishing for ice cream. Ice cream? It's too messy. He shuddered. I sighed loudly. I really hoped that would work. I closed my eyes. 0.4%, huh? You don't have to do this, princess. I'll come up with another plan. I looked at the map table. The heat-sensitive map was active, showing 12 of the 32 cells with red in them. The red splotches equaled vanished citizens. If I didn't rescue them, how many more splotches would there be? Kayla was a terrific happyologist. If I could get him to the point of almost vanishing back, I could use him to help me rescue everyone else. Kalo at 75 to 80% efficiency was something like four times better than me. I would need a bit more information before I could work that equation with accuracy, but I felt confident my estimate was correct. Then, when everyone else was safe, I'd get Kalo to vanish back by groveling or flattery. I wasn't confident I would get to happily ever after, especially not after groveling to Kalo, but I went over the numbers again in my head. It was the only way. I looked at the notes littered on Kalo's desk. On his calendar, in the square for today, he'd written, Lunch with Linda. Who's Linda? I asked aloud. Doug was furiously scribbling alternative plans for rescue. He looked up. Uh, Linda's the beauty from Beauty and the Beast. She called earlier looking for Kalo. I had to make something up. He went back to his planning, and I tried to figure out why her name was Linda. Why wasn't it just beauty? I surprised myself by actually remembering her story. She had traded places with her father so he could get out of the Beast's dungeon. She had sacrificed her life for his. Of course, it turned out rather well in the end, being a fairy tale and all. And just like that, I knew I'd do it. Even if I wound up stuck in a room that was a geometrical impossibility like those staircase illusions, I would do my best to rescue these stories. I would do it because of Beauty, or Linda, if that was her real name, and her sacrifice because Ella had offered her friendship without expecting anything in return, because Avon took time out of his busy Atlantis campaign to make a map table for me, and because Kalo didn't deserve to be vanished in Levi's attempt to get me. I smiled weakly at Doug. Okay, so how do I find Levi? Thank you for listening to this chapter. If you can't wait a week for the next installment, you can always purchase the Cinderella Theorem on Amazon.com in either a print or Kindle version. If you have friends who would enjoy the story, tell them about this podcast. I love to hear from my fans, so if you have a question for me, please reach out on the Lily Sparrow Chronicles Facebook page. Until then, may all your stories have happy endings.